Ask Me Another by Frank Gruber. Oliver Quaid was reading the morning paper, his bare feet on the bed and his chair tilted back against the radiator. Charlie Boston was on the bed, wrapped to his chin in a blanket and reading a copy of Exciting Confessions. It was just a usual, peaceful, after-breakfast interlude in the lives of Oliver Quaid, the human encyclopedia, and Charlie Boston, his friend and assistant. And then life intruded itself upon the bit of utopia. Life in the form of the manager of the Eagle Hotel. He beat a tattoo upon the thin panels of the door. Quaid put down his newspaper and sighed. Charles, will you please open the door and let in the wolf? Charlie Boston unrolled himself from the blanket. He scowled at Quaid. You think it's the manager about the room rent? Course it is. Let him in before he breaks down the door. It was the manager. In his right fist he held a ruled form on which were scrawled some unpleasant figures. About your rent, Mr. Quaid, he said severely. We must have the money today. Quaid looked at the manager of the Eagle Hotel, a puzzled expression on his face. Rent? Money? Of course, snapped the manager. This is the third time this week I've asked for it. A light came into Quaid's eyes. He made a quick movement and his feet and the front legs of the chair hit the carpeted floor simultaneously. Charles, he roared in a voice that shook the room and caused the manager to cringe. Did you forget to get that money from the bank and pay this little bill? Charlie Boston took up on Quaid's cue. Gosh, I'm awfully sorry. On my way to the bank yesterday afternoon, I ran into our old friend John Belmont of New York and he dragged me into the Palmer House bar for a cocktail. By the time I could tear myself away, the bank was closed. Quaid raised his hands and let them fall hopelessly. You see, Mr Crichton, I just can't trust him to do anything. Now I've got to go out into the cold this morning and get it myself. The hotel manager's eyes glinted. Listen, you've stalled, he began. But Quaid suddenly stabbed out a hand toward him. That reminds me, Mr Crichton, I've got a couple of complaints to make. We're not getting enough heat here, and last night the damn fool next door kept us awake half the night with his radio. I want you to see that he keeps quiet tonight, and do something about the heat. I can't stand drafty cold rooms. The manager let out a weary sigh. All right, I'll look after it. But about that rent... Yes, of course, cut in Quaid, and your maid left only two towels this morning. Please see that a couple more are sent up immediately. The manager closed the door behind him with a bang. Oliver Quaid chuckled and lifted his newspaper again, but Charlie Boston wouldn't let him read. You got away with it, Ollie, he said, but it's the last time I know it. I'll bet we get locked out before tonight. He shook his head sadly. You, Oliver Quaid, with the greatest brain in captivity. Are you going to walk the streets tonight in ten below zero weather? Course not, Charles, sighed Quaid. I was just about to tell you that we're going out to make some money today. Look, it's here in this paper. The Great Chicago Auditorium Poultry Show. Boston's eyes lit up for a moment, but then dimmed again. Can we raise three weeks' rent at a poultry show? Quaid slipped his feet into his socks and shoes. Uh, That remains to be seen. Uh, This paper mentions 20,000 paid admissions. Among that many people, there ought to be a few who are interested in higher learning. Well, are you ready? Boston went to the clothes closet and brought out their overcoats and a heavy suitcase. Boston was of middle height and burly. He could bend iron bars with his muscular hands. Quaid was taller and leaner. His face was hawk-like. 
his nose a little too pointed and lengthy, but few ever noticed that. They only saw his piercing, sparkling eyes and felt his dominant personality. The auditorium was almost two miles from their hotel, but lacking car fare, Quaid and Boston walked. When they reached their destination, Quaid cautioned Boston, Be sharp now, Charlie, act like we belonged. Quaid opened the outer door and walked blithely past the ticket window to the door leading into the auditorium proper. A uniformed man at the door held out his hand for the tickets. Hello, Quaid said heartily. How are you today? Uh, all right, I guess, replied the ticket taker. You boys got passes? Oh, sure. We're just taking in some supplies for the breeders. Brr, it's cold today. Well, be seeing you. And with that, he breezed past the ticket taker. How are you, pal? Boston said, treading on Quaid's heels. The auditorium was a huge place, but even so, it was almost completely filled with row upon row of wire exhibition coops, each coop containing a feathered fowl of some sort. What a lot of gumps, Boston observed. Don't use that word round here, Quaid cautioned. These poultry folks take their chickens seriously. Refer to the chickens as fine birds or elegant fowls or something like that. Damn these publicity men. Huh? Quaid waved a hand about the auditorium. The paper said 20,000 paid admissions. How many people do you see in here? Boston craned his neck around. Uh, if there's 50, I'm counting some of them twice. How the hell can they pay the nut with such a small attendance? The entry fees. Uh, there must be around 2,000 chickens in here. And the entry fee for each chicken is at least a dollar and a half. The prize money doesn't amount to much. And I guess the paid admissions are velvet, if they get any, which I doubt. Twenty thousand. Bah! snorted Boston. Well, do we go back? Where? Our only chance was to stay in our rooms. I bet the manager changed the lock the minute we left it. So what? So I get to work for the dear old Eagle Hotel. Quaid ploughed through an aisle to the far end of the auditorium. Commercial exhibits were contained in booths all around the four sides of the huge room, but Quaid found a small spot that had been overlooked and pushed a couple of chicken coops into place. Then he climbed up on the coops and began talking. The human encyclopedia's voice was an amazing one. People who heard it always marvelled that such a tremendous voice could come from so lean a man. Speaking without noticeable effort, his voice rolled out across the chicken coops. I'm Oliver Quaid, the human encyclopedia, he boomed. I have the greatest brain in the entire country. I know the answers to all questions, what came first, the chicken or the egg, every historical date since the beginning of time, the population of every city in the country, how to eradicate mice in your poultry yards, how to mix feeds to make your chickens lay more eggs, everything. Everything under the sun, on any subject, history, science, agriculture, and mathematics. The scattered persons in the auditorium began to converge upon Quaid's stand. Inside of two minutes, three-fourths of the people in the building were gathered before Quaid, and the rest were on their way. He continued his preliminary build-up in his rich, powerful voice. Ask me a question, someone. Let me prove that I'm the human encyclopedia, the man who knows the answers to all questions. Try me out, someone, on any subject. History, science, mathematics, agriculture, anything at all. Quaid stabbed out his lean forefinger at a middle-aged, sawed-off man wearing a tan smock. You, sir, ask me a question. The man flushed at being singled out of the crowd. Why, uh, 
I don't know of any. Uh, yes, I do. What's the highest official egg record ever made by a hen? That's the stuff, smiled Quaid. He held out his hand dramatically. That's a good question, but an easy one to answer. The highest record ever made by a hen in an American official egg-laying contest is 342 eggs. It was made in 1930 at the Athens-Georgia egg-laying contest by a single-comb white leghorn. Am I right, mister? The sawed-off man nodded grudgingly. Yeah, but I don't see how you knew it. Most poultry folks don't even remember it. Oh, but you forget. I told you I had the greatest brain in the country. I know the answers to all questions on any subject. Don't bother to ask me simple poultry questions. Try me on something hard. You, he picked out a lean, doer-looking man. Ask me something hard. The man bit his lip a moment, then said, All right, uh, what state has the longest coastline? Quaid grinned. Ah, you're trying the tricky stuff. (laughs) But you can't fool me. Most folks would say California or Florida, but the correct answer is Michigan. And ahead of the rest of you on the trick geography questions, let me say right away that Kentucky has the largest number of other states touching it, and Minnesota has the furthest northern point of any state. Next question. A young fellow wearing a pince-nez put his tongue into his cheek and asked, Why and how does a cat purr? Uh-oh, Quaid craned his neck to stare at the young fellow. I see we have a student with us. Well, young man, you've asked a question so difficult that practically every university professor in this country will be stumped on it. But I'm not. It so happens that I read a recent paper by Professor E. L. Gibbs of the Harvard Medical School in which he gave the results of his experiments on 400 cats to learn the answer to that very same question. The first part of the question is uh, simple enough. The cat purrs when it is contented, but to explain the actual act of purring is a little more difficult. Contentment in a cat relaxes the infundicular nerve in the brain, which reacts upon the pituitary and bronchial organs to make the purring sound issue from the cat's throat. Try that one on your friend sometime. Someone else asked me a question. I'd like to ask one, said a clear, feminine voice. Quaid's eyes lit up. He'd already noticed the girl, the only female in his audience. She was amazingly pretty the type of girl he would scarcely have expected to find at a poultry show. She was young, not more than twenty-one, and she had the finest chiselled features Quaid had ever seen. She was a blonde, and the rakish green hat and green coat she wore, although inexpensive, looked uh, exceedingly well on her. Yes, uh, what is the question? he asked, leaning forward a bit. The girl's chin came up defiantly, I just want to know why certain poultry judges allow dyed birds to be judged for prizes. A sudden rumble went up in the crowd, and Quaid saw the sawed-off man in the tan smock whirl and glare angrily at the girl. Ah, ah, Quaid said, you seem to have asked a delicate question. Well, I'll answer it just the same. Any judge who allows a dyed Rhode Island red to stay in the class is either an ignorant fool or a crook. Damn you, roared the little man, turning back to Quaid. You can't say that to me. I'll I'll, I'll have you thrown out of here. He started pushing his way through the crowd, heading in the direction of the front office. If the shoe fits, put it on, Quaid called after him. Then to the girl, who's he? 
A judge here stones his name. Well, let's get on with the show, Quaid said to the crowd. Next question. Quaid had lost nothing by his bold answer to the girl's question. The audience warmed to him, and the questions came fast and furious. Who was the 11th President of the United States? What is the Magna Carta? Who was the 1896 Olympic 220-metre champion? How do you cure scaly legs in chickens? How far is Saturn from the Earth? Quaid answered all questions put to him with lightning rapidity, but suddenly he called a dramatic halt. That's all the questions, folks. Now, uh, let me show you how you can learn all the answers yourselves to every question that has just been asked, and 10,000 more. He held out his hands, and Charlie Boston tossed a thick book into them, which he had taken from the suitcase they had brought with them. Quaid began ruffling the pages. They're all in here. This, my friends, is the Compendium of Human Knowledge, the greatest book of its kind ever published. 1,200 pages crammed with facts, information every one of you should know. The knowledge of the ages condensed, classified, abbreviated, a complete high school education in one volume. Ten minutes a day, and this book will make you the most learned person in your community. Quaid lowered his voice to a confidential pitch. Friends, I'm going to astonish you by telling you the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. The price of this book. Well, what do you think I'm asking for? Twenty-five dollars? No, not even twenty or fifteen. In fact, not even ten or five dollars. Just a mere paltry, insignificant two dollars and ninety-five cents. But I'm only going to offer these books once at that price. Two ninety-five, and here I come. Quaid leaped down from his platform to attack his audience, supposedly built up to the buying pitch but he was destined not to sell any books just then. Charlie Boston tugged at his coat sleeve. Look, Collie, he whispered hoarsely. He's got the cops. Quaid raised himself to his toes to look over the chicken coops. He groaned, for the short man in the tan smock was coming up the centre aisle, leading a small procession of policemen. Quaid sighed. Put the books back into the suitcase, Charlie. He leaned against the poultry coop and waited to submit quietly to the arrest. But the policeman did not come towards him. Reaching the centre aisle, the man in the tan smock wheeled to the left, away from Quaid, and the police followed him. Quaid's audience saw the police. Two or three persons broke away and started toward the other side of the building. The movement started to stampede, and in a moment Charlie Boston and Quaid were left alone. Something seems to have happened over there, Quaid observed. Wonder what? From the mob of cops, I'd say a murder. Boston replied dryly. The word murder was scarcely out of Boston's mouth, then it was hurled back at them from across the auditorium. It is a murder, Quaid gasped. This is no place for us, then, cried Boston. Let's scram. He caught up the suitcase containing the books and started off. But Quaid called him back. That's no good, there's a cop at the door. We'll have to stick. Chickens, howled Boston. The minute you mentioned them at the hotel, I had a hunch that something was going to happen, and I'll bet a plug dime, which I haven't got, that we get mixed up in it. Maybe so, Charlie, but if I know cops, there's going to be a lot of questioning, and my hunch is that we'll be better off if we're not too upstage. Let's go over and find out what's what. He started toward the other side of the auditorium. Boston followed, lugging the suitcase and grumbling. 
All of the crowd had gathered in front of a huge mahogany cabinet, a mammoth incubator. The door of the machine was standing open and two or three men were moving around inside. Quaid drew in his breath sharply when he saw the huddled body lying on the floor just inside the door of the incubator. Gradually, he began working his way through the crowd until he stood in front of the open incubator door. The small group came out of the incubator and a beetle-browed man in a camel's hair overcoat and Homburg hat squared himself off before the girl in the green hat and coat. The man in the tan smock, his head coming scarcely up to the armpits of the big man, hopped around like a bantam rooster. I understand he had a quarrel with him yesterday, the big man said to the girl. What about? The girl drew herself up to her full height. Because his birds were died and the judge, the man behind you, refused to throw them out, that's why. The bantam spluttered. She, why, that's a damn lie. The big detective turned abruptly, put a ham-like hand against the chest of the runt and shoved him back against the incubator with so much force that the little man gasped in pain. Listen, squirt, the detective said. Nothing's been proved against this girl, and until it is, she's a lady. Up here, we don't call ladies liars. He turned back to the girl and said with a gruff kindness, Now, miss, uh, let's have the story. There's no story, declared the girl. I did quarrel with him, just like I did with Judge Stone, but, but I haven't seen Mr. Tupper since yesterday evening. That's all I can tell you, because it's all I know. Yesterday, huh? The detective looked round the circle. Anybody see him here today? Yes, of course, said a stocky man of about forty-five. I was talking to him early this morning, before the place was open to the public. There were a dozen or more of us around then. You're the boss of this shebang. Not exactly. Our poultry association operates this show. I'm Leo Kasmer, the secretary, and I'm in charge of the exhibits, if that's what you mean. Yeah, that's what I mean, replied the detective. You're the boss. You know these exhibitors, then. All right. Who were here early this morning when this Tupper fellow was around? Casmer, the show's secretary, rubbed his chin. Why, uh, there was myself, uh, Judge Stone, Ralph Conway, the Wyandotte man, Judge Wellheimer, and several of the men who work around here. And uh, Miss Martin, w was she here? She came in before the place was officially opened, but she wasn't around the last time I saw Tupper. Who were Wellheimer and Conway? A tall, silver-haired man stepped out of the crowd. Conway's my name. And the judge persisted, the detective. A long-nosed man with a protruding lower lip came grudgingly out of the crowd. I'm Judge Wellheimer. You're a real judge or just a chicken judge? Why, uh, just a poultry judge, uh, licensed by the National Poultry Association. And you don't hold any public office at all? You're not even a justice of the peace? The long-nosed chicken judge reddened. He shook his head. The detective's eyes sparkled. That's fine. All that talk about judges had me worry for a bit, but listen, you chicken judges and the rest of you, I'm Sergeant Dickinson of the homicide squad of this town. There's been a murder committed here, and I'm investigating it, which means I'm boss round here. Get me? Quaid couldn't quite restrain a snicker. The sergeant's sharp ears heard it, and he singled out Quaid, and who the hell are you? Oliver Quaid, the human encyclopedia, Quaid replied glibly. I know the answers to all questions. Sergeant Dickinson's face twisted. Ribbing me, eh? Step up here where I can get a good look at you. Quaid remained where he was. There's a dead man in there. I don't like her to get too close to dead people. The sergeant took a half step toward Quaid, but then stopped himself. He tried to smooth out his face, 
but it was still dark with anger. I'll get around to you in a minute, fella. He turned belligerently to the show's secretary. You, who found the body? Casma pointed to a pasty-faced young fellow of about 30. The man grinned sickly. Yeah, I got in kind of late and started straightening things around. Um, then I saw that someone had stuck in that long staple in the door latch. I didn't think much about it and opened the door and, and there, uh, there he was, lying on the floor, uh, deader in a macro. You work for this uh, incubator company, the sergeant asked. The young fellow nodded. I'm the regional sales manager charge of this exhibit. It's the finest incubator on the market, used by the best breeders and hatchery men. Cut the sales talk, growled the detective. I'm not going to buy one. Let's go back on your story. What made you say this man was murdered? What else could it be? He was dead and the door was locked on the outside. I know that. But couldn't he have died of heart failure? There's plenty of air in that thing, and besides, there's a ventilator hole open up there. He was murdered, said Quaid. Sergeant Dickinson whirled. And how do you know? By looking at the body. Anyone could tell it was murder. Oh, yeah? Maybe you'll tell me how he was killed. There ain't a mark on the body. No marks of violence, because he wasn't killed that way. He was killed with a poison gas something containing cyanogen. The sergeant clamped his jaws together. Go on. Who killed him? Quaid shook his head. No, that's your job. I've given you enough to start with. You've been very helpful, said the sergeant, so much so that I'm going to arrest you. Charlie Boston groaned into Quaid's ears. Won't you ever learn to keep your mouth shut? But Quaid merely grinned insolently. If you arrest me, I'll sue you for false arrest. I'll take a chance on that, said the detective. No one could know as much as you do and not have had something to do with the murder. You're being very stupid, Sergeant, Quaid said. These men told you they hadn't seen Tupper alive for several hours. He's been dead at least three, and I just came into this building fifteen minutes ago. He's right, declared Anne Martin. I saw him come in, he and his friend. They went straight over to the other side of the building and started that sales talk. What sales talk? The little poultry judge hopped in again. He's a damn pitch man. Pulls some phony question and answer stuff and insults people. Claims he's the smartest man in the world. Bah! Bah to you, said Quaid. Cut it, cried Sergeant Dickinson. I want to get the straight of this. You, he turned to Casma. Did he really come in fifteen minutes ago? Casma shrugged. Uh, I never saw him until a few minutes ago, but uh, there's the ticket taker. He'll know. The ticket-taker, whose post had been taken over by a policeman, frowned. Yeah, he came in just a little while ago. I've got plenty of reason to remember. And when his pal crashed the gate on me. First time anyone crashed the gate on me in eight years. But he was damn slick. He, Never mind all the details, sighed Sergeant Dickinson. I can imagine he was slick about it. Well, mister, you didn't kill him. But tell me, how the hell do you know he was gassed with cyanide? Uh, cyanogen, it's got prussic acid in it. All right, um, the body was found inside the incubator, the door locked on the outside. This means someone locked him inside the incubator, uh, the person who killed him. Right so far? I'm listening. There was a thoughtful look in the sergeant's eyes. There's broken glass inside the incubator. The killer heaved in a bottle containing the stuff and slammed the door shut and locked it. The man inside was killed inside of a minute. 
Wait a minute. The glass is there all right, but how do you know it contains cyanogen? There's no smell in there. No, because the killer opened the ventilator hole and turned on the electric fans inside the incubator. All that can be done from the outside. The fans cleared out the fumes. Simple. Not so simple. You still haven't said how you know it was cyanogen. Uh, because he's got all the symptoms. Uh, look at the body. Pupils dilated, eyes wide, froth on the mouth, face livid, body twisted and stiff. That means he had convulsions. Well, if those symptoms don't mean cyanogen, I don't know what it's all about. Mister, said the detective, who did you say you were? Oliver Quaid, the human encyclopedia. I know everything. You know, I'm beginning to believe you. Well then, who did the killing? That's against the union rules. I told you how the man was killed. Finding who did it is your job. All right. But tell me one thing more. If this cyanogen has prussic acid in it, it's a deadly poison. Folks can't usually buy it. City folks, you mean? Cyanogen is the base for several insecticides. I don't think this was pure cyanogen. I'm inclined to believe it was a diluted form. Probably a gas used to kill rats on poultry farms. Any poultry raiser could buy that. Here comes the coroner's man, announced Detective Dickinson. Now we'll get a check on you, Mr. Quaid. Dr. Bogle, the coroner's physician, made a rapid but thorough examination of the body. His announcement coincided startlingly with Quaid's diagnosis. Prussic acid or cyanide, uh, he inhaled it, dead inside of five minutes, about three and a half hours ago. Quaid's face was twisted in a queer smile. He walked off from the group. Charlie Boston and Anne Martin, the girl, followed. Do you mind my saying that you just performed some remarkable work? The girl said admiringly. No, I don't mind your saying so, Quaid grinned. I was rather colossal. He pulls those things out of a hat, groused Boston. He's a very smart man. Only one thing he can't do. What's that? Boston started to reply, but Quaid's fierce look silenced him. Quaid coughed. Well, look, a hot dog stand. Reminds me. It's about lunchtime. Feel like a hot dog and orangeade, Annie? The girl smiled at his familiarity. I don't mind. I'm rather hungry. Boston sidled up to Quaid. Hey, you forgot, he whispered. You haven't got any money. Quaid said, three dogs and orangeades? A minute later, they were munching hot dogs. Quaid finished his orangeade and halfway through the sandwich suddenly snapped his fingers. That reminds me, I forgot something. Excuse me a moment. He started off suddenly towards the group around the incubator, ignoring Charlie Boston's startled protest. Boston suddenly had no appetite. He chewed the food in his mouth as long as he could. The girl finished her sandwich and smiled at him. That went pretty good. Guess I'll have another. How about you? Boston almost choked. Uh, no, um, I ain't hungry. The girl ordered another hot dog and orangeade and finished them while Boston still fooled with the tail end of his first sandwich. The concessionaire mopped up the counter all round Boston and Ann Martin and finally said, That's uh, 80 cents, mister. Boston put the last of the sandwich in his mouth and began going through his pockets. The girl watched him curiously. Boston went through his pockets a second time. That's funny, he finally said. I must have left my wallet at the hotel. Quaid, let me pay for it, said the girl, snapping open her purse. Boston's face was as red as a Harvard beet. Such things weren't embarrassing to Quaid, but they were to Boston. There's Mr. Quaid, said Anne Martin. Shall we join him? Boston was glad to get away from the hot dog stand. 
The investigation was still going on. Sergeant Dickinson was on his hands and knees inside the incubator. A policeman stood at the door of it and a couple more were going over the exterior. Quaid saluted them with a piece of wire. They're looking for clues, he said. The girl shivered. I'd like it much better if they'd take away Exhibit A. Can't, not until they take pictures. I hear the photographers and the fingerprint boys are coming down. It's not really necessary either, because uh, I know who the murderer is. The girl gasped. Who? Quaid did not reply. He looked at the piece of wire in his hands. It was evidently a spoke from a wire poultry coop, but it had been twisted into an elongated question mark. He tapped Dickinson's shoulder with the wire. The sergeant looked up and scowled. Huh? Want this? Quaid asked. What the hell is it? Just a piece of wire I picked up. What are you trying to do, rib me? Quaid shrugged. No, but I saw you on your hands and knees and thought you were looking for something. Thought this might be it. Dickinson snorted. What the hell? If you're not going to tell me who did the killing, let me alone. Okay. Quaid flipped the piece of wire over a row of chicken coops. Come, he said to Boston and Anne Martin. Let's go look at the turkeys at the other end of the building. Boston shuffled up beside Quaid as the three walked through the aisle. Who did it, Ollie? Can't tell now, because I uh, couldn't prove it. Uh, in a little while, perhaps. Boston let out his pent-up breath. If you ain't the damnedest guy ever. Anne Martin said, You mean you're not going to tell Sergeant Dickinson? Oh, yes, but I'm going to wait a while. Maybe he'll tumble himself, and I'd hate to deprive him of that pleasure. What time is it? Uh, I don't know, Boston said. I lost my watch in Kansas City. You remember that, don't you, Ollie? Quaid winced. Boston had lost his watch in Uncle Ben's three gold ball shop. Quaid had gone to Uncle Mo in St. Louis. It's 12.30, the girl said, looking at her wristwatch. Quaid nodded. That's fine. The early afternoon editions of the papers will have accounts of the murder, and a lot of morbid folks will flock round here later on. That means I can put on a good pitch and sell some of my books. I, I wanted to ask you about that, said Anne Martin. You answered some really remarkable questions this morning. I don't for the life of me see how you did it. Forsaking modesty for the moment, I do it because I really know all the answers. All? Uh-huh. You see, I've read an entire encyclopedia from cover to cover four times. Anne looked at him in astonishment. An entire encyclopedia? Twenty-four volumes. Well, let's go back now. Charlie, keep your eyes open. Ah, Charlie Boston said. Dr. Bogle's men were just taking away the body of the murdered man. Sergeant Dickinson, a disgusted look on his face, had rounded up his men and was on the verge of leaving. Not going, Captain Dickinson, Quaid asked. What good will it do to me to hang around, snorted the sergeant. Everyone and his brother has some phony alibi. But your clues, man! What clues? Quaid shook his head in exasperation. I told you how the murder was committed, didn't I? Yeah, sure. The guy locked a bloke in the incubator and tossed in the bottle of poison gas, then opened the ventilator and turned on the fans. But there were more than a dozen guys around, and almost any one of them could have done it, without any of the others even noticing what he was doing. No, you're wrong. Only one person could have done it. A hush suddenly fell upon the crowd. Charlie Boston, tensed and crouching, was breathing heavily. The police sergeant's face became bleak. Quaid had demonstrated his remarkable deductive ability a while ago, and Dickinson was willing to believe anything of him now. Quaid stepped lazily to a poultry coop, took hold of a wire bar, and with a sudden twist tore it off. Then he stepped to the side of the incubator. 
Look at this ventilator, he said. Notice that I can reach it easily enough. So could you, Lieutenant. We're about the same height, five feet ten. But a man only five two couldn't reach it even by standing on his toes. You follow me? Go on, said Sergeant Dickinson. Quaid twisted the piece of wire into an elongated question mark. To move a box or chair up here and climb upon it would attract attention, he went on, so the killer used a piece of wire to open the ventilator, uh, like this. Quaid caught the hook in the ventilator and pulled it open easily. That's good enough for me, said Sergeant Dickinson. You practically forced that wire on me a while ago and I, I couldn't see it. Well, Judge Stone, you're under arrest. He's a liar! roared the bantam poultry judge. He can't prove anything like that on me. He just tore that piece of wire from that coop. That's right, said Quade. You saw me pick up the original piece of wire, and when I threw it away after trying to give it to the sergeant, you got it and disposed of it. You didn't see me? No, I purposely walked away to give you a chance to get rid of the wire. But I laid a trap for you. While I had that wire, I smeared some ink on it to prove you handled it. Look at your hands, Judge Stone. Judge Stone raised both palms upward. His right thumb and fingers were smeared with the black stain. Sergeant Dickinson started towards the little poultry judge, but the bantam uttered a cry of fright and darted away. Ha! cried Charlie Boston and lunged for him. He wrapped his thick arms around the little man and tried to hold on to him but the judge was suddenly fighting for his life. He clawed at Boston's face and kicked his shins furiously. Boston howled and released his grip to defend himself with his fists. The poultry judge promptly butted Boston in the stomach and darted under his flailing arms. It was Anne Martin who stopped him. As the judge scrambled around Boston, she stepped forward and thrust out her right foot. The little man tripped over it and plunged headlong to the concrete floor of the auditorium. Before he could get up, Charlie Boston was on him. Sergeant Dickinson swooped down, a police positive in one hand and a pair of handcuffs in the other. The killer was secured. Stone quit then. Yeah, I killed him, the damn lousy blackmailer. For years I judged his chickens at the shows and always gave him the edge. Then he double-crossed me, got me fired. What job? asked Dickinson. My job as district manager for the Sibley Feed Company, replied Stone. Why do you have you fired? asked Quayle. Because you were short weighing him on his feed. Is that it? I gave him prizes his lousy chicken should never have had, snapped the little killer. What if I did short weigh him twenty or thirty per cent? I more than made up for it. Twenty or thirty per cent, said Quade, would amount to quite a bit of money in the course of a year. In his advertising in the poultry papers, Topper claimed he raised over 8,000 chickens a year. I don't need any more, said Sergeant Dickinson. Well, Mr Quaid, you certainly delivered the goods. Not me. I only told you who the murderer was. If it hadn't been for Miss Martin, he'd have got away. Quaid turned away. Anne, he said, Charlie and I are flat broke, but this afternoon a flock of rubbernecks are going to storm this place and I'm going to take quite a chunk of money from them, but... In the meantime, that hot dog wasn't very filling, and I wonder if you'd stake us to a lunch. Anne Martin's eyes twinkled. Listen, Mr Quaid, if you asked me for every cent I've got, I'd give it to you right away, because you'd get it from me anyway if you really wanted it. You're the world's greatest salesman. You even sold Judge Stone into confessing. Quaid grinned. Yes? How? She pointed at Quaid's hands. 
You handle that first wire hook with your bare hands. How come your hands didn't get black? Quaid chuckled. Smart girl. Even the sergeant didn't notice that. Well, I'll confess. I saw the smudge on Judge Stone's hands away back when I was putting on my pitch. He must have used a leaky fountain pen or something. Then you didn't put anything on it. No, but I knew he was the murderer and he knew it. Only he didn't know his hands were dirty, so... The girl drew a deep breath. Oliver Quaid, the lunches are on me. And the dinner and the show tonight are on me, grinned Oliver Quaid. So that was Ask Me Another by Frank Gruber. And I got it from an anthology called Classic Detective Stories, a suitcase book. Little tiny book, you'd fit it in your pocket, which is good, isn't it? But let me tell you something about Frank Gruber. So he was a prolific American author born on February 2nd, 1904, and he passed away on December 9th, 1969. Best known for his contributions to the uh, detective and Western genres, Gruber left an indelible mark on the world of pulp fiction during the mid-20th century. Gruber's early life was marked by a deep fascination with storytelling and literature. He attended the University of Illinois, where he honed his writing skills and developed a keen interest in mystery and adventure tales. After completing his education, Gruber ventured into the world of journalism, contributing articles to various publications. In the 1930s, Gruber transitioned to writing novels and quickly gained recognition for his work in the burgeoning pulp fiction market. His breakthrough came with the character of Oliver Quaid, who we just heard around, a humorous detective featured in a series of short stories. Gruber's witty and engaging writing style endeared him to his readers, establishing a foundation for his successful career. The 1940s marked a significant period in Gruber's career as he became a prominent figure in the detective fiction genre. His most notable creation during this time was the character Johnny Fletcher, a likeable and resourceful amateur detective. The Fletcher series, co-authored with fellow writer Thomas Thursday, gained popularity for its clever plots and engaging characters. As the demand for Western fiction rose in the post-war era, Gruber seamlessly transitioned to writing in this genre. He penned numerous Western novels, showcasing his versatility as a writer. One of his well-received works is Branded Outlaw, a Western novel that further solidified his reputation as a skilled storyteller. In addition to his detective and Western novels, Gruber contributed to various genres, including science fiction and adventure. His ability to captivate readers with dynamic characters and compelling narratives made him a sought-after author during this career. Frank Gruber's impact on the literary landscape extends beyond his own works. He was a co-founder of the American Writers' Congress, an organisation that aimed to promote the interests of professional writers. Gruber's legacy lives on through his extensive body of work, which continues to be appreciated by fans of classic detective and Western fiction. His influence on the pulp fiction era remains a testament to his storytelling prowess and enduring contributions to American literature. I think, um, yeah, you can tell it, this is this is a guy who writes a lot of stories. It, it's just uh, very smooth, very slick. Um, the uh, they they're just so the characters are kind of towards the cartoonish, aren't they? they they're larger than life, really. Um, which is what people want, and and his dialogue is kind of funny and and uh, naturalistic, you know. And you, it's not um, if you think of um, Sherlock Holmes and people like that. It's not a high level stuff. It's this is ordinary people talking, and he's a bit of a 
Yeah, he's not a con man. He's not a con man. So, but he's he's a he's a, a wide boy, really, as we might say. I don't know if they still say that, or even if you know what that means. But he's um, he's fly, you know, and um, you know he doesn't pay for his hot dogs. I mean, this may be considered the act of a a degenerate man, but uh, we he, we let him away with it because he's funny. And um, and then of course you have with detective fiction, you have the detective who is of a higher, a higher ability than most people. It starts with Sherlock Holmes, really, and then a lot of detective stories have these, and Agatha Christie and people like that, they have these very smart, and it's all deduction and logic and things like that on the Holmes model. And so basically what happens is something happens. And I think this is slightly different because a lot of the story isn't about the murder. It's setting up we're just enjoying this character, aren't we? We're enjoying the setting, we're enjoying the character, we're enjoying his repartee. Um, and then and then the kind of death comes in past the halfway mark. There's a pretty girl, you know, you can imagine that. in um, the, You can see in the movies of the period as well, you know, these are the elements that you need to have in. And um, and his sidekick, of course, who who is a bit slower and is like, yeah, how did you do that, you know? And, and a bit despairing of... His um his smart detective buddies, um uh, not yeah lifestyle is yeah you know yeah lifestyle really he's like you know you need to get us some money this is this is no way to live, and then and then he's like he's just slightly moderately disapproving in a small way disapproving perhaps so there we are and you know we're given a, a um and of course if we look at the clues were not there for us to work that out so this is mystery. And I keep banging on about this, that the different, the importance of when you're writing a story of the balance of knowledge between the reader, listener and the protagonist. So when the protagonist knows more than the listener, reader, that is mystery. Um, they're, they're keeping us in on tenterhooks. They know. I mean, you know, Miss Marple, Hercule Poirot, Sherlock Holmes, our man, uh, Quaid. They know, but they don't explain, and they, they kind of um, let us see later on. Uh, oh, yeah, and we're like, oh, yeah, oh, you're so smart, you know, and that is that is exactly the attitude of the sidekicks, isn't it, and everybody around them are fawning. Um, you know, they're very quite narcissistic sort of people, really. So that's mystery as opposed to suspense, whereby we don't know, they don't know, or dramatic irony, we know, they don't know. Oh, yeah, I say this many times, but you see this... Um, you know, different uh, different genres of, of writing use this balance, you know. I think in, when it's um, massively well done in more modern um, detective stories, the, the, the clues are laid out, but they're just obscured. They are covered in red herrings and they're misdirected, but they're there. So at the end you can go, ah, now the modern detective will be go, aha, oh, I didn't see that. I did not see the importance of that. It was there in plain sight, but I didn't see it. Um, whereas with these kind of golden age things, you you couldn't see it really. What would you make of the? You, what would you make of the wire? Mm, you would, didn't know the the broken glass isn't even mentioned till he says it. It's not like you could see it and deduce yourself. So um, all the information is provided afterwards. That isn't me complaining about it. I thought it was fun. Um, right. So yeah, here we are. Classic detective. Um, I, I I I I I I don't want to go on too long in these ones. You know what I do in my other one. I get comments like, forget the blather. I haven't done any American accents because I'm trying to hire an American 
male narrator or um, maybe eventually a female to do some other stuff but certainly um a male to do the sam spade type stuff you know which i think you need a, a, an american male with a certain voice to do that uh, so that doesn't mean i hate the rest of the world i don't hate irish women or australian you know whatever um it's just that's what I'm looking for. So for this kind of work, you know. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. Keep tuning in. Spread the word. Tell your friends uh, if you like these stories. They're just a kind of an amusement, aren't they? So please keep listening. Mm-hmm.